While we continue in our study of Proverbs, you might as well open up Proverbs chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 19. Last week, we considered the right way for us to find sexual gratification. That was from Proverbs chapter 5, and it was a beautiful picture of intimacy and the marriage bed. Proverbs 5 showed us also things that we should avoid, forbidden pleasures, places that we must not go. The end of chapter 6, which we'll get to next week, deals with adultery as does all of chapter 7, but sandwiched in between these um, kind of themes is are these 19 verses that we come to today in Proverbs chapter 6. And we'll see that We're not considering the worthlessness of adulterers and and adultery. We're considering ways in which people make themselves worthless, worthless things that people engage in, things that God hates. And so we're going to see these four separate lessons or epigrams. An epigram is a lesson. And we'll see them being paired up. So the first two are linked together. The last two are linked together. And then I've, I've organized this sermon into three acts because there really are three distinct parts to this message. But there's a common theme that's linking all the things, and that is worthless behavior, worthlessness. And in Act 2, we will come to the most worthless person of all, the insurrectionist. And I'm not just trying to pull something out of the passage to fit our time. I find it amazing that God has brought us to this passage in the times that we are in. It is his providence. And we need wisdom. We need wisdom on these kinds of issues. It's hard to know what voices to listen to. And we are living in a time of division and discord and disunity and and insurrection. And the church has been absolutely infiltrated by these worthless voices. And so, thankfully... We can address this because Proverbs takes us right there. So what I want to do today is expose worthless behaviors. I want to expose worthless individuals, not by naming names though. And then I want to look at him who is worthy. So that's where we're going today. Let's pray. Father God, you are the ultimate great sovereign uniter. You have brought us into your family, uniting us with yourself. You have brought us together as a people, uniting us with one another. And I pray that in this room there is no division, that there is nothing that would separate us from you or one another. Lord, protect this place. We know that the great insurrectionist wants to kill, steal, and destroy from your church and from us. Father, protect us. Give us wisdom as we consider Proverbs. Use my words, so fallible and human, to speak of divine things. And use our ears, Lord, to hear them. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So instead of reading the whole passage this morning, I'm going to read each epigram as they come. So look with me at Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. My son... If you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. 
For you have come into the hands of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and a bird from the hand of the fowler. So the first thing to notice is that we do not start with your typical epilogue, your exordium. We get this dive right in, father addressing the son kind of lesson. Not uh, keep my words, keep the understanding. He goes right into the lesson with the son and we come to act one, which is this worthless, these different worthless behaviors. The first one in epigram one is avoid foolish security or foolish surety, I'm sorry. So the father is imagining this situation, and I'm going to put it into a different context so we can maybe understand it a bit better. There's a person, let's say his name is Tom, and Tom needs some money, and so he goes to a lender to get, some, to get a loan, but his credit is poor, so the lender requires that he get somebody to co-sign on this loan. So Tom approaches you. Will you co-sign for Tom? Will you be the surety for his loan? Now, if Tom is not able to repay his debts, if he defaults, that's on you, and all of your assets are now up for grabs. By being the co-signer, the surety, if Tom can't pay, you will, and you can be sure of it. Four times apart from this passage, so five times total in Proverbs, Proverbs is warning us against such risky business, which I find to be kind of amazing must have been a a wide problem um, in the ancient world. But here's one of them from Proverbs 17, 18. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbors. And really, this is teaching us that taking responsibility for someone else's debts is a risky endeavor. And watch out if anybody is asking you to do it. But the epigram leaves room to be the surety, to be a co-signer for someone else. and In fact, it almost expects that these are going to happen. Just do it wisely. So there are times where it, it is a good thing to put up security for your neighbor, to be the surety. And it can be a great act of mercy and generosity. And we know this because Paul did this for Onesimus, the runaway slave. And we see that in his letter to Philemon. Paul writes this, If he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So Paul doesn't necessarily know of any past debts that Onesimus has incurred, but if there are any, he will pay it. He will be the surety. He will guarantee that Philemon is paid. It was a merciful act of this man that he has come to love, Onesimus or for Onesimus. But Paul is putting himself up only for past debts, not future debts. So there's wisdom in that. If anything has been incurred, I'll pay that. He knows, he trusts Onesimus, and he's, he's ready to put himself on the line for him. But of course, Proverbs 6 is addressing a slightly different situation. So one might have decent knowledge of a neighbor or a friend like Onesimus, but not for a stranger, somebody approaches you on the street and asks you to co-sign for them, that would be foolish. Don't put yourself in a position of liability that you don't, you, with people you don't know or trust. 
You'll be making a promise you can't keep all of your assets up for grabs. It is foolish. The debt collectors will take all. And so the father is instructing his son, if you get there, if that happens to you, then beg, then grovel. Do not sleep, do not rest, do everything you can to get out of such a foolish agreement. You've gotten yourself there. Save yourself from it, you foolish son. So, of course, that's an imaginary situation. But what causes a person to become worthless in this passage? What's the worthless behavior? Foolish decision-making. Foolish use of the resources that God has given A foolish commitment. Only give your word when you can keep it. There's all kinds of folly in such a situation. And all this foolishness is shown to be as worthless as it is by this pitiful scene of a man groveling before his debt collectors, begging to get out of his financial obligations. That is a pitiful scene indeed. And the father hopes that by begging, he would be able to escape the hand of the debt collector. In a similar way, the sluggard is able to escape the hand of poverty by working hard. And so we come to the second epigram in verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. So as the father moves into this second epigram, the son moves from the forefront to the background, and now it's the sluggard who is being directly addressed. And of course, the father's hoping the son can learn from these warnings given to the sluggard. Hopefully, we can learn from this warning, from the self-destructive ways of the lazy person. So this example of the ant, it's an example of hard work, of self-motivation, of foresight. Nobody has to tell the ant what to do. The ant knows what to do. The ant goes out and does it. They don't need supervision. They see the needs of the moment and they meet them. And the ant is being anthropomorphized. It's being given human characteristics. And so the ant is wisely able to look into the future and see coming needs, not just present needs, but coming needs, and then act appropriately so that he is prepared, she is prepared when these needs do arrive. And in all of it, there's this internal drive, this motivation that's like an engine driving this ant, this tiny little unsupervised, lowly creature to work and accomplish and do and be prepared and get ready. So God provides the food, but the ant must diligently harvest at the right time and in the right way. And if this lowly creature, this, this little ant, can do all of this, why cannot you? Why cannot we? People who are like the ant, and, and I'm really speaking as, as a pastor and a leader, people who are like an ant and who have humility are absolute treasures. I, will, I want them. I want to surround myself with them. I love them. They are awesome. 
but the lazy person who escapes work for ease, they are worthless. And unless they take immediate and decisive action, judgment will overtake them. That's what the Father is warning. The judgment is coming for you. Poverty is going to get you. Wake up, sleeper. And sleep is, of course, the identifying trait, defining trait of a lazy person. And we've heard about sleeping a bunch of times now in the book of Proverbs. The wise enjoy sleep. The wicked cannot sleep unless they have fulfilled their their sinful plans. The debtor, as we just read, should not allow himself to sleep. But the lazy person, he cannot get enough sleep. He's never satisfied by his sleep, always wanting more. And it's not just sleep that marks the sluggard's life. They lounge away, they fritter away their days on screens, and they are hungry for entertainment and play while they shrug off hard work and responsibility. Sluggards clothe themselves in procrastination, and they say to others, and they say to themselves, I'll get to it tomorrow. But all this laziness is just escapism. They don't want to deal with the real world. They have this insatiable hunger for present ease. And so in an attempt to avoid the difficulties of life and hard work, they are killing themselves one wasted moment at a time. As Derek Kidner writes, the sluggard does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So, by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away almost like death by a thousand paper cuts, wasted moments. God hates it when a person wastes the time that he has given to them. And so Jesus highlights this because he tells a parable where a master gives his servants sums of money, some large sums of money, some not as large, and two of these servants take that money when the master leaves and they invest it and they double it. They work hard and they double that money. But one of the servants, he buries it in the ground and when the master returns, he gives him back exactly what he had received. There is no growth, no increase, and nothing more to show. And his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) That is stark. If your life is marked by laziness, Poverty will come upon you like a robber. And there is no greater poverty than to be separated from the one who offers eternal life. Indeed, laziness is a worthless behavior. Paul writes, Awake, O sleeper! Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Foolish decision-making and laziness are both unwise and worthless behaviors, and both can be avoided 
That's why the Father is telling the Son this. You don't have to walk in this way. And if you see these tendencies in yourself, escape them. Save yourself from them. Do not be ensnared. Repent. Because if you don't, you will become a worthless person. That's where they lead. And so we come to the next epigram in Act 2, the insurrectionist. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment, He will be broken beyond healing. So this third epigram is really about avoiding the insurrectionist. It's not about don't become one. It's about stay away from them. The insurrectionist is a rebel. He lives in defiance and he divides people against each other. He's a worthless person and a wicked man. Avoid him. And you can tell that we are dealing with a worthless insurrectionist because of their crooked mouth. Their speech is a scorching fire. That's what Proverbs tells us in in chapter 16. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. What is the effect? A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Now, Proverbs 16, that part of 16, is is laid in parallel to our passage today. And so we know that this is talking about a person who is sowing discord, separating brothers, bringing disunity. It's more than lying. This crooked mouth is more than lying. It's about dividing people, even close friends, brother against brother. Slander and gossip and discontentedness and suspicion and discord All of that is crooked speech, and all of that are markers of the insurrectionist. He's not just undermining friendship, he's undermining the very fabric of society, the foundations of society. That's what's happening, that's the effect as it spreads and grows. No wonder God is calling them out as worthless. He is a kingdom builder, a unifier. Note in verse 13 how the insurrectionist is trying to, constantly trying to form teams. His gestures, his nonverbal signals, his winks is drawing people in, entangling them with his conspiracies. He's creating an us versus them mentality, continually sowing these seeds of discord. My team, your team, and we are against each other. In verse 14, this divisive poison, it's infectious, it spreads, and the perverted heart begins to beat in the chest of other people. Rabbi W. Gunter Plout writes, By his devious and invidious motions, he attempts to derogate others and thereby to lower their status in the eyes of their associates. In turn, a troublemaker troublemaker feels superior And his ego satisfaction is his ultimate desire and goal. That is an indictment. So by increasing tribalism, by bringing more people over to his side, 
the insurrectionist is feeding his own ego. His greatest pleasure is getting people to leave their former allegiances, join him. And every fool that falls into that trap affirms the insurrectionist's self-justifying, perverted heart. The foolish, wicked, worthless insurrectionist believes himself to be better than, to have the better way, the better understanding, and his crooked speech and his silent signals and his finger pointing and his evil plotting and his divisive sowing, it's all to make dissenters look less than him, less than his ideals, with inferior views, inferior practices, inferior understanding, inferior values, inferior people. Inferior people. That's where this goes. It's dehumanization, which is only a few short steps away from devaluing the sanctity of their lives. And out of this, once it's gone to its conclusion, it goes towards murder, towards genocide, towards war. Calamity is coming for the insurrectionist. Divine calamity. God opposes the proud. Total ruin is his reward. And a wise person would have predicted it. A wise person would have seen it coming. But the insurrectionist is caught completely by surprise. God regards him as utterly worthless. And so we are being warned, do not listen to his crooked mouth. He wants to make you suspicious. He wants to make you be discontent. He wants you to feel like you can no longer associate with certain kinds of people. Don't listen. He's a worthless liar. And then the language gets even stronger as we get into the final epigram. And we see that indeed this worthless person is an insurrectionist. In verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are abominations to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. Verse 16 may sound strange. It is a strange-sounding verse. Six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abominations to him. It turns out there's no real precise way for us to understand this. It seems like it was a very cultural thing to say, and it's, it's somewhat unique to ancient wisdom literature. But the best gist of it that I could get from commentators is, is this. There are six or seven things that the Lord hates. I don't know why the ambiguity. It was a cultural thing, I guess. But really we find that it's the continuation of epigram three. We are given seven things that are abominations to the Lord, and God hates them all. And they're not separate things found in separate individuals. They can be, but that's not really what's being said here. Each one of these things is a marker of the exact same person, the insurrectionist. They are being linked together in the same individual. Or type of individual. And so let's go through these seven things. The first is haughty eyes. 
Haughty eyes betray arrogance that lies behind them. And in his own mind, the the insurrectionist self-exalts. He's filled with contempt for others. We have the lying tongue. He lies to people to, for people to, to trust him. He lies to get people to join his cause. He lies to get people to turn on one, other, one another. And he lies to make himself look like an expert, a guide, a hero, an authority. The third thing, hands that shed innocent blood. We talked about how it goes in that direction. The insurrectionist is quick to lash out at those that oppose him. He may even sacrifice those that follow him. Their blood, it's an easy price to pay so long as he is right, so that his cause is upheld. Others will die, so he remains right. Fourthly, a heart that devises wicked plans. He is calculating and cold at the very core of who he is. He might appear like a savior. He might appear trustworthy. He's rotten. Fifth, feet that run to evil. So once these wicked plans have been devised in his heart, he is off and running to accomplish them. The insurrectionist is no sluggard. He wastes no second, no time. He will accomplish his evil plans. Six, false witness breathing out lies. A false witness is not just a liar. They are a liar lying about others. They lie about other people. They lie about what they're doing, what their reputation is, who they are, all of these things. They bear false witness about others. And it's as easy as breathing for him. It's like he needs it. He depends upon it. Seventh, sows discord among brothers. That can also be translated as unleashes conflict among brothers. And now this being at the end of the list is the climax. And you can see as it's at the bottom of the list how all the others filter into it. This is the same person. He who sows discord among brothers who unleashes conflict is the pinnacle of what the Lord hates. You will see this so clearly. This is the pinnacle of what the Lord hates. He turns brother against brother. He tears apart community. He undermines society. He is a worthless insurrectionist. And he reflects his father, Satan, the first and chief insurrectionist. Avoid him at all costs. Paul tells Titus of this as he's beginning to take a church. As for a person who stirs up divisions, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. An insurrectionist might prop themselves up as a political hero. He might claim to have received some special word of knowledge from a Washington insider or maybe from God. He's an insurrectionist. He's a false teacher. He's a false prophet. He is a wolf. Jesus warned us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruits, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruits. Every tree that that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the most critical thing for us to know in avoiding insurrectionists. You will know them by their fruits. A prophet stands in the place of authority. He declares to people what they should do, what they should think, as if they were a voice from God. But a false prophet is the essence of an insurrectionist because they are spewing lies about what God said, and they're not bringing people closer to God, but further. They are dividing people one against the other. Ultimately, that undermines the fabric of a community. In 2 Peter 2.1, Peter equates false prophets with false teachers. So here's what we need to see. Insurrectionists clothe themselves as prophets, as teachers, as leaders, as politicians, maybe even as friends. Wolves in sheep's clothing that look trustworthy. They say the right things, they have the right credentials, they appear trustworthy, and then when you are drawn in, you are exploited by their self-righteousness and greed and are devoured. So do not look at their appearances. What lies in the wake of their lives? What is the fruit? Is it good? I know this is controversial. But was it good fruit when we saw armed citizens raiding the Capitol? Was it good fruit when the streets of America were on fire this past summer? Is it good fruit when a mask divides people between parties? Is it good fruit when people think less of those that disagree with them? Is it good fruit when different opinions are being silenced? Is it good fruit when you are promised things that never come to pass? No. All these things have happened because of crooked and arrogant speech, the speech of insurrectionists. Because of worthless people that sow seeds of discord and division. They look trustworthy, but they are wolves. I have been given the job over this flock to be an under-shepherd and to be on guard against wolves. And it's hard for me to contain my anger about some of this stuff because I see, so, see seeds of discord sown here. Hmm. That was a soapbox. These wolves, they've crept into a church. They've crept into our church. They've crept into many churches. And they are hungry. And they are killing. And there's already blood. Is there a voice that would cause you to look with suspicion at somebody in the church? Is there a value propagated by a teacher or by an expert that makes relationships here increasingly difficult? Is there some affiliation that makes it impossible to associate with people unaffiliated? Be on guard. 
Behind all of that is an insurrectionist. He might be in Washington. He might be on YouTube. He might be on the news. He might be here. But most certainly, undoubtedly, sitting behind all of them is Satan himself, hungry to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Brothers and sisters, we need to watch ourselves, all of us. We need to watch ourselves, that we don't fall into foolish commitments, that we don't, aren't sickened by laziness. We don't let those self-destructive behaviors lead us into poverty. But we need to be on a special guard, my friends, especially in these times, against insurrectionists. They are everywhere, and they are abominations to the Lord, and those that join them receive their reward. And now we must enter Act 3. We must. Jesus. Satan, he's the chief insurrectionist, undoubtedly. And we were all chasing him, following him, listening to him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were followers of the chief insurrectionist, and the reward of insurrection was ours. Born into the wild to wolves, children of wrath, insurrectionists by blood, with perverted hearts and open rebellion against God, lives full of sin. Insurrectionists, against God and His created order. Do you know the legal reason why Jesus was crucified? By the Romans? Enemy of the state. He was killed for being an insurrectionist. But He wasn't. He was innocent. Perfect. A good citizen. And He died for us the true insurrectionists. We had a debt that we could never hope to repay, and Jesus became our surety. He paid off every one of our debts by his blood and redeemed us. And we were frittering away our lives on selfish pursuits, worthless things. And then Christ gives us his life, and every good work that he accomplished is now Put on our register. He became sin who knew no sin, and we become the righteousness of God. By his blood, we who are marked by division and rebellion, by debt and wasted days, and were separated from God, are united. And in one of the most glorious passages, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, with which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And we are now united with Christ, with the Father, with the Spirit. There is no condemnation, there is no separation, no division, 
despite all of our insurrections. And he unites us one to another. He even prayed that as near as he is to the Father, I would be with you and you with me and each person in this room with one another. The best way to avoid the crooked speech of an insurrectionist, without a doubt, is to listen to the voice of Jesus, who died in our place, who prayed for this incredible, divine, holy unity. He left us with this. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he proved that love when he stretched out his arms and he bled and he died for us. He asks us to do that for each other. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, love one another. That means that we are patient and kind with one another. We do not boast, we are not rude. We do not demand our own way. We refuse to be irritable and resentful. Rather, we, we help each other through struggles. We believe the very best things about each other. We hope for one another's success and joy and work for it. And we endure each other's faults, as painful as they may be. And if we do this, if we live in this way, we will expose insurrectionists for the fools that they are. They will gain no followers in our midst. Let us leave behind worthless behaviors and worthless practices and worthless people for him who is of the greatest worth, the fountainhead of all wisdom, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is him and him alone. There are no substitutes. He is the only voice that gives life, that brings unity. And he is the only one who can unite people as different as we all are. He's the only one who will ultimately protect us from the wolves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us discernment in our times. It is challenging for every single one of us to know what to listen to, to know how to respond. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see which is the way of life, the way of truth, the way of wisdom. Guide us by your hand on that way. Make the voice of Jesus more desirable, more beautiful than anything else that's out there. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us because it, in it we find truth for every situation. I praise you, Lord, that you have not left us unequipped. Lord, I pray that in this body of believers and in your church at large, we would be one as you and the Son are one. Help us to love one another, to be self-sacrificial, to help carry each other's burdens and invest in each other. Thank you that you have brought us together in this place and in this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.